Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks that you have given us your holy word. And in it, you have not left us then groping in the darkness to try and figure out life on our own. You have shed light so that we can know how we ought to live and what makes for the best life. We thank you that you've given us your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It directs our steps. And if we'll receive it today, you have wisdom for us, light to shine upon us. So then we ask for your help, that you would protect us from every distracting thought, from every competing desire, and that you would help us to tune into your word, that we might be wiser for it, live better for it, to your glory and our good. Come do all of that, we ask and pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we want to sort of wrap up our series then on work and rest, this sort of short series that we've done together as we try to consider these two rhythms that make up so much of our life, the calling to vocation and the calling to Sabbath, the calling of work and the calling of rest. And we want to bring that to an end today by thinking together about time. And the reason we want to do that is because if you stand back, that's essentially what we're talking about. What we're talking about is how we spend our time whether that be how we spend our time at work or whether we spend our time at rest, whether we're talking about how we spend the hours between Monday through Friday from 9 to 5 or what we do on our Saturdays or Sundays, we're talking essentially about our time. And in one sense, that's what all of our life is. Your life is comprised of the time that you have, the time that you have left even. And so perhaps few things could be as important for us as how we think about time. For most of us, we're too busy to think about time, right? And so the way we relate with time is that we simply just don't have enough of it. Our schedules are jam-packed and crowded. You you think of like a a teenager's locker, just overflowing with things, a a total mess. That's what our schedules, our lives can feel like, jam-packed with hardly any room to breathe, no margin for error. We often either seem to be running late to get to something or leaving early to get to something else. We're constantly on the go. When it comes to time, we're often crammed for time or pressed for time or running out of time or finding that things are taking a lot of our time. We just never seem to have enough time. And yet sort of the irony of it is we live in a day and an age where we can do things faster than any era of human history. I mean, we can do things more efficiently with less time than it's ever taken before. I mean, you think of that. When our forefathers wanted to buy a car... You'd have to put on a jacket, you'd have to go outside, you'd have to drive from one dealership to another, you'd have to make phone calls, you'd have to figure out the right place. Now, literally, with the click of a button, sitting in your pajamas at home, you can purchase a car. Or or my parents had immigrated from India. When they came here and they wanted to communicate back home, they would have to grab a paper and a pen and they'd have to write a letter and go to the post office and attach a stamp and they'd have to mail it and wait weeks for it to get there and weeks for it to get a response back. And now literally you can pull out your phone, dictate in 30 seconds what you want to say, hit send and it'll be on the other side of the planet. In every way we're more efficient than humanity has ever been. We can do things with less time than it's ever taken. And yet that seems to be exactly what we have to show for it. Less time. Right? We have less time than we've ever had. And so while trying to save time and balance our time, few of us have ever had the time to stand back and think about how we view all of this, how we consider it. So this morning, 
I want us to look at a psalm that I think will give you incredible insight on how you think about time and perhaps even wisdom about every decision you'll ever make regarding your time. In fact, the promise of this psalm is that if you'll take it in, you will literally leave here wiser than you came in. Okay? That's not preacher talk. That's genuinely what this psalm is saying. You don't have to wait till next week or next year after you've tried it out for a while. You can genuinely, on the spot, leave here today wiser than you walked in by simply receiving what this psalm has to say. So the psalm we're looking at is Psalm 90. So if you'd grab your Bible, turn right to the middle. It's the big book in the middle is the Psalms. This is the 90th Psalm. It's an old Psalm. In fact, it may be one of our oldest Psalms. And the reason is because when you get to Psalm 90, you'll notice at the top, it says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. This is an old Psalm because it's not even King David who wrote many of the other Psalms writing this one. This one was written by Moses. Moses, right? So if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt, Moses. This is the Moses who we, last week when we looked at the book of Genesis a few weeks ago, as he talked about work and creation in the garden, the writer of Genesis, Moses, is this Moses. It's the same Moses who wrote Exodus and Deuteronomy as we looked last week at the commands to Sabbath. That Moses wrote this psalm. Now, We're not exactly sure when in Moses' life he wrote this psalm, but most likely he wrote it towards sort of the latter stage of his life. If you know the story of Moses, Moses has basically three epic chapters to his life. Chapter one of his life is the beginning of his life where he's rescued miraculously, birthed itself, and he grows up as a prince in Egypt, in Pharaoh's home. There's a hinge that turns to chapter 2, which is the the next great scene of his life. He strangles an Egyptian because he's overcome by how much the people are suffering in slavery. And he then escapes to Midian and he spends the next chunk of his life for 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. I mean, you can just imagine how slow his life moved along. Every day was take out the sheep, feed the sheep, bring in the sheep. And then you take out the sheep and you feed the sheep and you bring in the sheep. And you watch the sun go up and down as you care for the sheep. And every day he did that for 40 years. And Moses wouldn't have known that his life would have any more to it. He would have just figured he would have lived and died watching those sheep. Except the third chapter of his life is the God calling him burning bush, let my people go, plagues, Red Sea, epic scene. And then the last section, those 40 years, is Moses delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then he spends the last 40 years of his life basically walking around the same cul-de-sac over and over and over again. Right? He's got this little tiny place that he's got to get them from one side to another. It should have taken him a few days. And yet, because of the people's sin, God says, I'm not going to let them into the promised land. And in fact, because of Moses' sin, he's not into the, allowed into the promised land. And he's got to walk around in circles for 40 years as he waits for this one entire generation to die. And you can picture that. I mean, two million people have to die. So that's a lot of funerals. Day after day after day as Moses watches this generation drop dead. Moses' numbers tells us live to see his sister Miriam die. Live to bury his brother Aaron In fact, Moses lives to the ripe old age of 120 before he himself dies. And so Moses has seen a lot of time. He's seen a lot of life. 
He's seen a lot of things happen. He's seen a lot of people come and go. He's seen highs and he's seen lows. And all of that gives Moses a unique perspective. It's perhaps reflecting on those things that causes Moses to write Psalm 90. I think it's out of all of that that Psalm 90 is birthed. And in Psalm 90, Moses deals very squarely with life and with death and with time. In fact, he deals with things, I want you to hear, that we don't like to think about, much less dwell on. But I want you to know, this psalm is not morbid. It's not pessimistic. It's not that the glass is half empty. It's not that Moses is depressed. Rather, Moses is very realistic in a way that will be eye-opening and helpful, in a way that if you embrace it now, you'll have wisdom before it's too late to think about these things. So here's the psalm, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Here's how it starts in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Right, that's how Moses starts. He starts with his glance upwards towards God and he begins to consider in verse 1 and 2 the greatness and the grandeur of God. And he specifically thinks of the eternality of God. One preacher says, it's as if in verse 1 and 2, Moses is trying to communicate to us, God is much older than we think. Right? God is much older than we think. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember, when Moses is writing this, he and the people of Israel are wandering homeless. They're wandering from tent to tent. They're setting up and breaking down and moving and setting up and breaking down. They're wandering homeless. And yet in that place, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You've been the context where we've lived. You've been the home, the shelter, the refuge that we've known. And he goes to say, and that's not just true for me individually. That's true for all my people for all generations. Lord, in all generations, you have been our dwelling place. So he's saying, not, not only have you been a shelter and a refuge and a home and a dwelling place and, and a place for me, not only have you been faithful in my lifetime, you were that way in my parents' lifetime. In fact, if you went back 400 years to when Joseph first came to Egypt, you were that way. If you went back to his father, Jacob, that cheater, and yet you worked with him, you were that way. And his father, the blind Isaac, you were that way. And his father, Abraham, called out of that land, you were that way. In fact, if we went back all the way to the first man, Adam himself, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. This summer, I went to India after 10 years and got to visit my family. And one of the highlights of that trip was that I got to see my 95-year-old grandmother. And one of the highlights of seeing my 95-year-old grandmother is we got to record her as she sang a hymn that she wrote herself. She had composed in her old age a hymn, four stanzas, and the hymn was about her longing to go home and be with Jesus. And I'm listening to my 95-year-old grandmother sing about her longing to go home. And sitting next to her is my mom. And sitting next to her is th their son, me. And I'm holding in my hand my two children. And I could say with Moses, Lord, you have been a dwelling place in all generations. For as far back as I could go, you've been faithful. You've been that way in our lifetime and in my father's lifetime and in my father's father's lifetime, you've been that way. And those of you that have the blessing and heritage of something similar, you could say the same thing. And, and, and I want you to know, even if you weren't born in a Christian home, 
even if you didn't grow up that way, this psalm is saying, listen, God has known you from way back. That God is the one who has been able to look through the corridors of time and history down to you, down to the plan he has for you, down to the purposes he has for you. In fact, it could be that God intends to turn your line in your generation. That some generations downstream from now, they'll look back at you as the turning point to say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That through the corridors of time, looking down history, God has known you, loved you, that the Lord has known you from way back. In fact, if you want to know how far back, look at verse 2. Moses says, before the mountains were brought forth, or you had... Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God, you, you've not only been our dwelling place as far back as the generations go, as far back as Abraham, as far back as Adam. No, Lord, you go before that. You go even further back. In fact, before the mountains were fastened to the ground floor. In fact, before there was a ground floor to fasten them to, before there was an earth to have a ground floor, before there was any matter, before there was anything, before there was a was, you were there. Before there was a was, you are. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Meaning that the arrow goes in that direction forever back. And that the arrow goes forever in that direction, forever forward, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's the kind of thing, friends, that you can't think about without your head hurting a little. Because even if you can grasp what it would mean to go on forever, what does it mean to have no beginning? What does it mean to have no birth date, no beginning, that there was never a time when you were not God. If we went forever in that arrow in that direction, you would, we would find that, God, you were there. And if we went forever in that direction, God, we'd find that you will be there. And if I stand here right now, I know that, God, you are here. You are the God who is and was and forever will be. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Moses is saying, listen, here's the point. Between those two arrows going forever in either direction is my life, is your life, is our time. Between everlasting to everlasting, a tiny sliver, a tiny splice is the time that you and I have. Right? All of our lives is found within the framework of you, God, within the context of you. You're the dwelling place in which all generations have dwelt. And from everlasting to everlasting, somewhere in there is me. I think the preacher's right. God is much older than we think. And in fact, if you get this, I think it'll begin to reorient how you think about God. Particularly when God doesn't seem to show up when you think he should. And do things when you think he ought to do them. When he doesn't operate in your schedule. Or cooperate with your timetable. Or get things accomplished when you think they should be accomplished. This psalm comes and says, son, I have been at this a lot longer than you think. In fact, I have been exactly on time for all generations. Right? It's, it's that we don't get God's sense of time. I heard this one preacher named Kevin DeYoung. 
He said it's almost like if you're a parent with a young child and you head out on a road trip, about eight minutes in, they ask you what? Are we there yet? And you want to go, kid, we're going to Dallas for Christmas, <laughs> right? This is going to be a long drive. And about two more minutes go and they go, are we there yet now? And what you want to do is you want to turn around and go, oh, I wish you had an adult sense of time. Now, of course they don't. For them, eight minutes feels like eternity. And you can't help but wonder if with our protest to the sky about God's timing, if he doesn't look down on us and smile and say, child, I know this feels like eternity. But you have no idea what eternity is, because I do. From everlasting to everlasting, I am God. So hang tight. I've been exactly on time for all generations. I have no intention to stop now. Oh, that you would have a God-sense time, but you don't. Because we don't experience time like God does. In fact, that's what Moses gets at next. In his next few verses, he wants to say this. He wants to set up a contrast where he says, Lord, you're everlasting, but we're not. Lord, you have no beginning and no end. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You're eternal, but we're not. Here's what he says, verse 3 and following. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Pause there for a second. So he's saying, Lord, you have no beginning and no end, but we, on the other hand, we have a definite beginning and a definite end. Moses is thinking back to his first book, Genesis, the chapters we looked at just a few weeks ago, how God had fashioned man out of dust. And if you look down in your Bible in verses 7 through 9, you'll see that we sinned, and because of that, now we were made from the dust and will return to the dust. Why? Because we've sinned. Our secret sins are before the Lord. All are in His presence. We, we are under His wrath. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our treason against God... We were made from the dust, and we shall languish and return to the dust. We're not like you. You have no beginning and no end. We're under your wrath. We are dust and will return to dust, and we don't experience time as you do. Look at verse 4 and following. For a thousand years in your sight are as but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Here's what Moses is saying. He's saying, God, you are limitless, but we are limited. God, you are eternal, but we are ephemeral. We're a vapor. God, you're boundless in time. We are bound into time. We don't experience time as you do. I mean, you just think of this. For us, a day can feel so long, right? You get to Monday morning and you're like, when is it going to be Friday? Or you even say at the end of a day, you go, I've had a really long day. A day can feel like it never ends. And yet, at the same time for us, years can feel like they fly by, right? Both happen for us. I watched a video of an older pastor this week as he was encouraging young parents to enjoy their kids. And he said, because before you know it, they'll be grown up. And you've heard that before. If you've got older folks, they'll tell you, enjoy these years. They don't last forever. They're going to be gone before you know it. And you can almost picture it. You, you can see these little ones already, and you know the day is coming where you're going to look at them and go, when did you turn 20? 
Wasn't it just yesterday we brought you from the hospital? And listen, all of us know that. Do you know that tomorrow or the day after, whatever it is, it's December? It's December already. In a few weeks, we'll be ringing in a new year. And when you hear that, don't you go, where did this year go? W weren't we just ringing in 2015 just a, a minute ago? Didn't it feel like yesterday? And the psalmist is trying to say, you see that feeling that you have like it was just yesterday? What you feel about a few days or a few weeks or maybe a year is what God feels about a millennia. Right? Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or a watch in the night. That is for the God who is from arrow to arrow, from everlasting to everlasting. For him, a thousand years, a thousand laps around the sun, 365,000 days, 8,760,000 hours feels like it was yesterday for him. Feels like it was a, a watch in the night. The watch in the night is the span of three hours. A thousand years for God feels like what three hours feel like. That's how fast it goes for him who is from everlasting to everlasting. I mean, you think from 1900 to 2000. That, that means that God watched 18 U.S. presidents, two world wars, the Nazi regime, Holocaust, see the space shuttle, see a man sent to the moon, the stock markets go up and down, us transition from the phone to the internet, uh, uh, literally nations come into existence and fall out of existence, revolutions, powers, and all that be in the time that it took you to roast a turkey this week. Because for him, it, it doesn't work like it does for us. It, it, it's like Christmas, Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago. For him, that's like the day before yesterday. The day before yesterday. You, you think of this. And, and what Moses is saying is, listen, in comparison with our everlasting to everlasting God, your time is so short. That's Moses' point. Your life is a drop in the ocean. Your life is so short. A thousand years is like three hours. That means in God time... My entire life is about six minutes. In God time, I've been alive for about six minutes. On January 1st, Laura will celebrate her 89th birthday. That means this is Laura's sweet 16 year. And not 16 years, 16 minutes. A long life in everlasting to everlasting is 16 minutes. And Moses' point is, here's what he's saying. Don't you get it? Your life is like a dream. It, it feels vivid. It feels real. You wake up and you forgot what it was. Oh, don't you get it? You're like grass that springs up in the morning and you go, oh, there's grass. And by evening, it's gone. Don't you get it? You're like a dandelion in a tsunami. You're just swept away like in a flood. In verse 10, he'll say, listen, you get 70 years here. Maybe if you're strong, you get 80. If you're Laura strong, you get like 90. And then it's gone. We fly away like vapor, like, like breath on a cold day is the sum and substance of all your years. You see, when you begin to see that, now you begin to understand what time really is. 
so that it begins to make you think about, well, then how should I engage time and use time and spend time? And that's Moses' point. Listen, if our lives are this short, if God is eternal and we're not, if God has unlimited time and we don't, then what should we do? And it gives you two applications in this prayer. Here's the first, verse 12. Because it is this way, we should say, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Here's the first thing you should do. You should pray, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So he's saying, teach us to number our days. That is, teach us to live as if our days are numbered. That's what he's saying. Teach us to number our days. He's saying, Lord, teach us to live as if our days are numbered that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Do you notice that? It's not go be wise, go get wisdom, and then you'll know how to spend your time. No, it's rather understand your limited time, and it will give you then wisdom about how to spend your time. One preacher said it like this, and he says it well. If you realize your time is limited, then you'll have wisdom about how to spend your limited time. Hear that again. It's worth noting. It's worth jotting down. It's worth keeping in your mind. You don't have to go elsewhere for wisdom. What the psalmist is doing is forwarding you to your last hour, to your last moment, whether that be a few minutes from now on your drive home or some years from now. It's forwarding you to that last moment and saying, in light of that coming reality, let that truth sink into this moment and dictate what you do with your time now. Here's the wisdom. If you realize your time is limited you'll gain wisdom about how to spend your limited time. If you understand your days are numbered, your time is limited, you'll gain wisdom about how to spend your limited time. There's a story of a man who, on his 50th birthday, went and bought a jar of marbles, bought 1,300 marbles. Because his thought was that if he lives to be 75, he's got 1,300 Saturdays left. And so every Saturday, he'd go into his jar, he'd take a marble, and he'd throw it out. Every Saturday, go into his jar, take a marble, and throw it out. And watch this thing drop as a constant reminder to him, my days are numbered. My time is limited. I've lived a certain number of days. There's only a few more of these coming. My days are short. I wonder for you, what will you need to do to remind your heart about your limited time? Or, or listen to this quote from Steve Jobs. He said this before he passed away. He said, Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. That sounds like wisdom. And it's the wisdom that comes from numbering your days. See, when the reality of his limited days hit him squarely in the face and he embraced that his numbered days were numbered, then he said, it helped me make all the big choices in life. Then I gained the wisdom that I needed to know how to spend my limited time. Remembering that your time is limited provides you with the wisdom to know how to spend your limited time. So, maybe on the drive home today, or maybe for a few minutes at some point in the evening today, maybe you'll think, if my time is limited, if my life is short, if it is, at the end of the day, a cold breath on a cold day, 
then maybe you'll ask, what things do I need to start doing that I'm not doing? Maybe you'll ask, what things do I need to stop doing that I am doing? And in between, maybe you'll ask, what things should I do more? What things should I do less? If Psalm 90 is giving me a vision of that last day, I don't want to regret it. And Psalm 90 is given to you on this day, hear me, so that you can avoid that regret that comes from the last hour wondering how and why you squandered all your time. And so Psalm 90 is pulling you into the future and saying, here, stare at this now, because remembering that your time is limited will give you the wisdom to know how to spend your limited time. So teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the second thing he says is in verses 13 to 17. Because God is eternal and we're not, because our life is short and limited, here's what he says. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He says, because God is eternal and your life is short, here's the other thing you should do. You should seek God and his mercies for whatever days you have left. You should seek God in His mercy for whatever days you have left. Listen, some of you should listen to me right now. Once you realize that your days are numbered, and you have limited time, and you gain wisdom from that, some of you, the first thing you need to do is get right with God. You need to get right with God because your days are limited. And if there is a voice in your head that says, well, I can do that later, then brother, you have not heard anything this sermon or this psalm had to say. If you think to yourself, well, I can do that later. If you're a kid and go, well, now is the time to have fun. And, and later I can get serious about God. When I'm in high school or in college, that's when people have a crisis of faith and get serious about God. Then you get to college and you find this is the time to enjoy life. You're young once. When you get married and have kids and you settle down, that's when people need religion. And then you get married and have kids and you settle down and you find that you're working on your career and your ambition. You have to make something of yourself in the world. You have no time for anything and you figure once the kids leave and I retire, then I'll have all the time in the world. And this psalm is saying to you, listen to me. If I have not been clear till now, let me be as clear as I can. Friend, you are a breath. You're grass. You sprout in the morning. By evening, it's gone. You're like a breath on a cold day. You're like a dream. You're like a dandelion in a tsunami. You will be swept away. And so now is the right time to get right with God. I promise you, you are not promised even another minute. Now is the time. You are under the sound of my voice so that you might get right with God and seek His mercy for whatever days He gives you. I heard the story of Winston Churchill this week, the great man who had done all the great things. And the story goes that when he came to his deathbed, that Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, went and proclaimed the gospel to him, shared the gospel as clearly as he could. And the story goes, it's reported that Winston Churchill heard everything that Billy Graham had to say and simply said back, 
I'm too old for that now. Now, it's a telling thing that you ought not assume that a lifetime of hardening your heart would suddenly leave you soft at the end. That there will come a time when it's too late to get right with God. And so, as He has given you time in this very moment, this is the time to get right with God. In fact, that's what the psalmist is praying at the end. I want you to know, the psalm doesn't end in pessimism. The psalm begins and ends with the Lord. Do you notice that? O Lord, our Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And it ends by saying, return, O Lord. It's essentially a reversal of the whole thing and saying, Lord, You've got to come to us. And what's interesting here is, before, it was God who said, return. Do you remember? Return, O children of man, to dust in judgment because of sin. And yet now we cry out, return, O Lord, in mercy towards us. In mercy, have pity on your servants. He's saying, look, whatever days you give us, let them be filled with your mercy. Whatever mornings you give us, if you give us tomorrow morning, it's not guaranteed you, if you give us tomorrow morning, then satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And whatever days we have left, let them be joyful. Make us glad. For as many days as you afflicted us, give us that many days of joy. He says here, listen, we're gone. We're here today, gone tomorrow. And yet, that shortness of life, don't let us throw up our hands. Instead, establish the work of our hands. Would you hear that? Yes, your life is a breath. Yes, it's a vapor. Yes, your grass here today, gone in the evening. And yet, don't let that throw up your hands. No, establish the work of our hands, O Lord. That is, in this breath of life, in this vapor of life you've given us, give us something meaningful to do, something that will last, something that matters in the end. And Lord, show this power to us and to our children, he prays. So hear that. He starts with the generations in view, and he ends with the generations in view. He starts with, generations back, you've been faithful. And he ends with saying, our time is short, so for generations downstream, let them know you also. I want you to know that. Your life is short. You should pray that for your children. I can tell you, I have often gone into my kids' rooms when they're sleeping and begin to pray over them. And I can tell you genuinely with weeping and tears, beg God that these two that I have would know the Lord. I beg the Lord that they would walk with him closer than I did, love him more nearly, follow him more faithfully, be better servants than I ever was. I beg the Lord for that. And as I'm praying that for them, I begin to think, you know, one day, Lord willing, Hannah will have one and Micah will have one. And they'll want their kids to know the Lord as badly as I want my kids to know the Lord. So the psalmist says that generations, that children yet unborn would know the Lord. So I pray for them also. And then I imagine that those kids would want their kids to know the Lord. So I kid you not, I pray for a thousand generations downstream of Thomas's to know the Lord. That not one would fall away. And you should pray that. Oh Lord, let your servants know your work. And our children know your power also. That for generations, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. And Lord, just like that happened to my generation, oh God, would you give my kids stories also? So that when they sit up in a GCM room and they write out their timeline, they go, yeah, this is where God met me. And these were the, part, the people who were a part of that and that their kids would say and do the same thing and that would continue. 
that, that God's story of salvation doesn't end in our generation, but keeps on going for as long as he gives time. As many mornings as there are, let those mornings be satisfying us with your steadfast love. This is what we ought to pray. And he ends by saying, give us your favor, O Lord. And you think of this, give us your mercy, O Lord. Give us your steadfast love, O Lord. Give us your favor, O Lord. Look upon us with favor. And, and we, sitting here in 2015, 2,000 years after Jesus came, the day after Jesus came in God's time, how can we not hear mercy and steadfast love and the favor of the Lord and not think back to Jesus? And not think back to where the mercy of God and the steadfast love of God and the favor of God was shown most poignantly and most clearly except in the cross of Jesus Christ. And to even think the only reason he can treat us that way is because he didn't treat his son that way. Would, would you think this? If you have your Bible, in 7 through 9, that's how God treated Jesus. So that 13 through 17 might be how he treats us. In 7 through 9, it's, oh Lord, we're dismayed under your wrath. All our secret sins, our iniquities are before you. And would you think that Jesus Christ came into the world, done nothing wrong. The one son of Adam whom he shouldn't say children of man return to dust, die. And yet, he was under God's wrath and dismayed. And all our iniquities and your secret sins were put on Jesus Christ. So that mercy might be thrown to us. So that steadfast love might be extended to us. God cut Jesus' mornings short so that we might wake up under the blanket of his steadfast love every morning. I mean, would you think of that? God snuffed out Jesus' life. I am older than Jesus was. God snuffed out that life so that he might fill my days and mornings with steadfast love. God hid his face from Jesus, turned it away, so that he might shine his favor on my face. Would you think of that? When we pray, Lord, let your favor be upon us, that's saying, Lord, look upon us with favor. And the only reason the Lord looks upon you with favor is because he looked upon his son with wrath, turned his face away, you know, when we get to the end of our services, often we give this benediction from number six. We say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And, and listen, those aren't just words. That's Psalm 90. That's saying, Lord, look on us with favor. Let your face shine upon us because it was dim towards your son. Let it be bright towards us because it was angry at your son. Why? Because of our secret sins and our iniquities. Psalm 90 is saying, God is eternal. You're not. And so, remember that your time is limited, that you might have wisdom to know how to use your limited time. And seek God in his mercies with whatever days he gives you left, so that you might experience his steadfast love and his favor and you might be glad for all your days. Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks because you have given us your word. We pray now that it would deal with us in a way that it reorients our thinking, that it shapes what we believe, and therefore transforms what we do. 
We ask, O Lord, that you would sow this seed deep into our hearts, that it would bear fruit, and that we would leave this place wiser because we have received your word. We do thank you together for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you treated him with wrath. You turned your face away so that you might treat us with mercy and look upon us with favor. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.